Welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm Nikki, your host, and it's my pleasure to introduce you to the robotics and AI community in Australia. In the coming weeks, I will be acknowledging the premier, principal, and lead partners of the Women in AI 2023 Awards, which will be held on Friday, 16 June at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. These valued Women in AI Award partners have been invited to nominate an up-and-coming inspirational young woman within their organization a rising star to tell their story. Trans Urban, a lead partner, have nominated Dr. Gunal Galmadova, currently, who currently works as a senior data scientist and is working on developing and implementing data-driven solutions that have a measurable impact on the company. Gunal, welcome, and thank you so very much for joining me today. Uh, hi, and uh, thank you very much for inviting. Uh, very pleased to be here. Oh, super. You uh, were born in the Ukraine. Uh, you have lived in different countries and you speak seven languages. So we have to start there. You know, I'm South African, so I'm bilingual. I speak Afrikaans and English, Afrikaans being my first, my mother tongue. So sometimes, you know, my thinking goes there. But how did this happen for you? So um, my my parents, they, they speak few languages, but I didn't really grow in this bilingual kind of family. It's, it was actually living in different countries that... Um, was the reason to learn those languages. So I've learned like Ukrainian, Russian. Um, I lived in Cuba where I learned Spanish and Azerbaijani being my mother tongue. But then um, the remaining languages, they were more about uh, my parents encouraging and supporting me to continue improving on those languages and knowledge. So that's how I continued learning those languages. And I actually enjoyed doing that. But I think previously it was, it sounded quite exciting to me as well, like, oh, to learn the new language. But now when I look back at it, I think I would probably should have learned more of a programming languages at the time. <laughs> well, I, I probably agree with you there because I actually Googled last night and I don't know why I did this. I went things that you should know. I didn't actually put my age in. So I just said, you know, things that you should know how to do. So one is being able to change a car tire. One is being able to... Um, cook a decent meal I, I can't even remember what the list was and then one of them said coding and I thought are you ridiculous like I, at my age and I actually stopped and I thought would I be able to at my age actually start to learn coding oh absolutely like I think actually coding because it has a more structure than some languages it's easier to learn uh, coding itself so and once you know one language it's easier to shift between the languages once you have those fundamentals so I think for example if you know if you speak Ukrainian um, to learn English and start speaking in English it would take you a while but if you know a particular language and if you want to shift from that you can start writing the code I mean on the same day you just already have something so so you've I think got the base yeah you've got the yeah. base to work from you know I've, I've heard that um educational say that if you can speak another language and you can play an instrument it develops another part of your brain that wouldn't necessarily be developed and um for me I just think I was just very fortunate my mother's was English and my dad was Afrikaans so you you know, it was just an obvious, we just spoke two languages at home, which even to this day in South Africa, because you assume all South African Afrikaans, they can't. And we would often have English speaking South Africans over to dinner 
all my brothers and sisters would speak English to each other and then they'd flip over to Afrikaans to me. It's just a peculiarity we had in our family. And you'd have these guests following the conversation brilliantly up until a point, then miss out what they've got to say to me and then continue again. But just touching on the, the, the languages that you can speak, I'm assuming that you also have a little bit of a better understanding of the nationalities associated with the languages. That's true, yes. That, that's how when, when you meet people from different backgrounds or areas, um, learning the language and knowing even the dialect allows you to, to know them better and to when they say something, you know what do they actually mean? Like, how does it relate to them? Um, because we just when you, when you just learn the language, and I think, not only the language, but also because I lived across those countries, that kind of really helps me to understand those. Because when you just learn the language, you just learn like whatever you know, and then you translate it and it's kind of just, just learn how to speak. Yes. But once you are in the conversations and you meet people from different backgrounds, that's where you kind of feel, oh, they said this, but they actually meant this because in their language, that's that's kind of relates to X, Y, and Z. Yeah. I actually was speaking to a friend this morning and we were talking about languages and um, immigrating to Australia. And I don't know whether you've experienced um, this, that there's English and then there's Australian English. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's, uh, I think a lot of, I well, my, for myself and a lot of people whom I know who migrate to Australia, one of the experiences, although I came with, I thought I speak English. <laughs> and then the first shop or somewhere when you, uh, when you ask something and they ask you, sorry, what? Like, well, I thought I said this correct. And you kind of repeat that and like, sorry, what? Like, okay, I think something needs to be changed or other way around as well when they ask you a question and you don't really understand it. Are you going, um, yeah, don't worry, I experienced all of yeah. that. <laughs> you received your master, your bachelor's degree in economics, cybernetics, and master's degree in mathematics with distinction from Buckley State University. You went on to complete your PhD in mathematical economics and another master's degree in applied econometrics with distinction from Monash University. How did you end up at Monash University? So, as you can see, I, can, I have uh, quite a bit of a history in education. So, I back overseas the way you would go you would do your bachelor's degree and then only after bachelor's you would have your master's and then you can choose whether you want to go to pursue your PhD so I've done my bachelor's my master's and the PhD and then I was thinking more about okay I have this knowledge but I want more to get more like knowledge about how to apply it so and I think I wasn't brave enough at the time just out of uni uh, to go straight into the industry so I thought the best way is probably to find uh, another degree or something that would actually tie all this background knowledge that I have, but also bring some extra knowledge and would have this application lay on top of it. So I started doing my research and I found um, the degree at Monash, which is Applied Econometrics. And I guess the name talks to itself, it's applied. Uh, it had quite a high ranking and, um, and then I applied to it, I got admitted, I got a full scholarship. And yeah, that's where my journey at Monash started. And if you had your journey over again and, you know, choosing whether you should go into industry or just going studying, would you do this, make the same decision? Um, I think, I think I, I don't regret about spending many years in education because, yes, people jump from education straight into industry. They 
get a lot of experience and um, which is really great. And I think they have probably a more interesting path in a way. But I find having this academia knowledge, they actually prepared and gave me a lot of um, a lot of skills that probably people jumping straight from bachelor's degree into industry wouldn't have. So I would probably still go that way, maybe with less degrees. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yes, I would still go pursue like the PhD and then would jump into into the industry, I guess. Look, congratulations on the full scholarship because that makes all the difference. You don't want to be paying for a PhD. It's quite an expensive degree. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you've, you. you've had about eight or over eight years experience in academia and around five years in consulting across different industries such as telco, mining, financial services, retail. Why is data analytics so important? Um, and maybe talk especially to companies such as Transurban. Um, I think data analytics is important for not only for like toll operating, toll road operating companies as Transurban, but for any other company. And the reason for that, because it helps companies achieve um, different goals and those goals in particular those goals that can create a more sustainable future so achieving those goals as um, enhancing safety tackling climate change um, reducing carbon footprint reducing greenhouse gas emissions all of those are really those um, big but at the same time impactful goals that companies focus around obviously there are other goals like um, cost reduction, customer acquisition, identifying the best course of action to increase the revenue and, and analytics is the way to go for those. Um, yeah, I think. I'm sitting and thinking, is it is it the right assumption to think that it's only huge companies such as Transurban that have teams dedicated to data analytics and doing this? Or what do small small companies in Australia do with their data mining? How, how would they approach? So it's not really about big company or small company. Previously, it was thought that oh, to start a data capability, you need like big investment and you need to have those teams who would start doing this. But, but the reality is that data analytics nowadays is very accessible to any sized company. And one way to go is we have so many third-party product and tools that are you just you just can't start from today. And if you are not doing out doing that today, I think those are the companies that are missing out on those things. And yeah. if we're talking about the impact of data analytics, so according to uh, McKinsey report, there are companies which are doing some analytics, they get insight, but there are also companies who are taking those insights and convert them into action. So companies that convert them into actions, those are actually the winners because they get an extra 15 to 25% on top of their average market growth. So it's like, I think it's just a, it's a no-brainer. No yeah. Yep. Data and data storage in Australia, in the last year, we've had three major breaches, security breaches, um, Medibank, Optus, and most recently Latitude. What, what should companies be doing in terms of security? And just first up, I think the fines have been increased. Um, I, I think they were minimal, but I think Optus, after the Optus hack, I think now data breach, the companies are actually being whopped with serious fines to get their, their security in line. Um, it's a, an interesting question because I think, uh, I'm not a security expert, but I can approach this from a data science perspective. And security is everyone's responsibility. And this is a fundamental principle. And data management, it should be embedded and be an integral part of 
all the processes and the workflows. So, you know, um, when we're talking about security and getting people aware of it, we say there are two types of measures. One are preventative measures, so the breach doesn't happen first place. And the other one, it's, okay, once the breach has happened, um, there needs to be an incident plan to mitigate that risk and to reduce the impact. And uh, usually there are security measures, preventative measures, they include like access controls, um, getting regular patches and updates, changing passwords regularly. But if let's say all of those things are done, but in our workflows, we still store our credentials uh, hard-coded in the code, and then we push that code. Uh, that is actually our responsibility, and this will not reduce the risk of data breach at all. So the important piece, I think, in this puzzle is educating employees and running those data literacy programs and embedding those practices, well, best data management practices into how we handle data, how we store all these logging data details and all about it. But we just um, letting employees and people understand this and also use this in their daily workflows and processes. Once you use it in your once you embed it in your processes, once you have all these best practices, even if the breach happens, what you're doing is you are actually limiting the amount of that uh, breach. You're reducing that to if you wouldn't have done that at all. So I think, yeah. I think the, I was reading an article and the point being made, especially with the latitude breach that has just happened, that um, the company has stored, for instance, um, uh, passport details dating back to 2005. You know, like, that's, why would they need to keep that sort of information on their system for that length of time? Yeah, that's, uh, that is an interesting one, because I think uh, usually it's about seven years that you would keep some documents well, and but in particular, this kind of financial institution keeping it for so long. I'm not really sure why I would do that. Yeah. Because no, they don't, a lot of them, they probably not even a customers anymore. Yeah. It's, look, I think, I think in terms of technology and rules that may have been applicable, the seven-year rule, you know, the ATO, it's tax reason why you have to keep your yes. those sort of documents that length of time. I think with breaches happening on a more regular basis, company security not being what it is, there are all sorts of rules that may need to be looked at and gone, well, you could keep it, but you need to keep it, I don't know, I don't know if it's possible to keep it off your server or that people can't actually have access to it. Um, I'm certainly not a security expert, but I've been affected in three hacks now because I've been a, I've been a customer of all three institutions. I'm one less. <laughs> I think I'm there too. <laughs> you know, so I'm just reading this going, well, tomorrow morning, I'm sure another company that I've, that's got my daughter, someone's going to pop up and go, you've been hacked as well. <laughs> Look, I think, you know, I'm laughing about it, but it, it's not, um, you know, especially the Medibank, because that's extremely personal medical information. And I, I think uh, some of it was released on the dark web. And, you know, my point of view is, I know I've been, I've been exposed three times. So anyone who's, you know, I get a phone call and I go, I don't know this number, I'm just hanging up. I've, be, I've gone to the other side now of just being extremely vigilant. Leave me a message if you phone me, if you can't get hold of me, but I'm not going to be answering phone the numbers that I don't know who they are because, you know, the latest is I'm phoning you to tell you that your account's been hacked and I'm from whatever bank and you go, oh, I'm panicking, I'm panicking. It happened to my sister in South Africa and I said to just hang up, tell them you're two minutes from the branch and just hang up. I don't see a bank ever phone you doing this. Oh, that's that's so true. And and I think uh, this makes people, I'm inclu including me, 
a bit paranoid. So, you know, in the stores when they ask you, would you like to sign up or some items that you have ever signed up you're like no thank you and um, one strategy that I used which is probably a bit of funny one but um, in those loyalty programs not giving up your actual details mm. like Jane Smith or things things like that mm. so and using a particular email address to uh, for those details not not the one that you use for banking details I used to work for the product uh, for the product which was uh, the core goal of which was to deal with the identity fraud and help businesses identify those so you would be surprised how small number of information points you need to commit identity fraud and now all the ai be developing and and the part where i get a bit paranoid is when i get a call and i pick up the phone and i don't know maybe it's from school or something but i don't want to say anything because then you know how on the applications you say um, you can do like a voice transaction. So the fear is you get some of your voice and then that can be easily transformed into any sentence that you need. And then it's not only your identity information that they need, which is easy to find. It's actually your voice now as well. Uh, Gunal, I had to be the bearer of bad news, but this podcast is going live and... <laughs> If I was reading the same thing and I thought, well, if someone wants my voice, they've got it in 106 episodes. They can construct whole sentences <laughs> of what I've got to say. So I, I completely agree with you. The bank, um, I bank with, I won't say which bank, but like mine does, um, you know, please, please uh, confirm this with your voice. You know, before I do the payment, I have to do the sentence. And um, it's always very funny in the house when people go, are you confirming a payment again? Are you, is money being moved? Because because I can hear the sentence. So there's no um, stealth mode here because I have to actually confirm with my voice. And look, I, I think these are these are going to be challenges for us going forward um, in terms of technical advancement. There's no stopping it. Uh, chat GPT is, of course, off the scale. I, I have to admit, I haven't actually used it. I haven't gone in. I just speak to a lot of people and they tell me, have you oh. done it? Oh, yes, yes. I <laughs> I have used it and um, and it's quite funny because um, the other day my daughter had an essay and I thought I can help her and I was like, oh, let me see, maybe I rephrase some of the sentences and she was, no, no, the teacher said, you can't use that. I will be like, bad. <laughs> you don't want me to get the bad mark. I can't do this, which is, um, which is, I found it really difficult to control nowadays. And um, particularly for schools, because schools want to give you those skills. And so that then once you have those skills, go and use ChatGPT. that's fine, but you should have those skills yourself, right? But um, I have used it for even refactoring the code where you just want to see how good or how bad or how does it do it. And it's to be frank, it's pretty, pretty good. Like, obviously, you need some viewing of it, you need to test it, you need to even the sentences, you need to uh, rephrase or maybe change it a bit. But overall, it's, uh, it saves quite a lot of time, particularly for small things. But uh, yeah, one of my previous uh, guests was actually telling me that um, it's a really good base to start off with. So you know, if your base isn't that great, if you're a bit shaky, and you don't know anything, you can use it as a base to maybe uh, develop your own thinking or go, oh, well, I didn't even think of that. And, you know, maybe I can think of some other things. I completely agree with you. But I think as as it evolves and the more people that use it, the better it's going to get. I've also had other guests tell me that um, some of the stuff that's on there is quite frankly wrong. But I think, again, as users 
it's a bit like Wikipedia, like I'm thinking, it's a bit like Wikipedia. You're putting something into it, it's wrong, and people come and correct it. And the more people use it, uh, the better it will get. Yes, that's right. And uh, for example, one test that I tried, if you ask for an exemption for something, write me an exemption letter for something. Uh, usually, if it's related to traveling, it would say COVID-related stuff, uh, all these border restrictions, because it obviously has some older information. It was trained on the older data. Yeah. But you're right, as, as we go further, it gets trained in the more, um, on a more up-to-date data. That would be more smarter and more relevant. You know, I um, a lot of my guests have got kids that are still young. They're still at school. My sons are adult. And um, I'm very happy to say I'm delighted to be in this category that they, you know, I, I listen to the challenges that kids have, parents have um, around security. Are you allowed to take photos? Are you allowed to put stuff on Facebook of your children? And I, I sometimes wonder, you know, I, I follow some people people on um, social media that they all their children's information everything is available like you can see the whole child from the child was four months old to eight or nine years and I'm waiting for the day when one of these kids turn around and sue their parents for a breach of privacy because their whole life is on social media that I actually have family friends who who kind of um, they wanted to film videos with the kids and then maybe post them online but they're waiting for the kids to be a bit old enough to see whether they the child wants it or not but the question there is how old needs to be the child and like do you need to wait to 18 years old then well you would never do that <laughs> you would have it in your library and um that's a very interesting point and i don't know whether there's any i know in the past like famous people have sued their parents um i think i think there is going to be a test case you know at some point because you were talking about how little information do you need to actually perpetrate an identity fraud? I'm always loath that banks still send your replacement cards to your actual street address. And five days later, they send a, send a PIN number. You know, anyone that's watching, I hope I'm not giving any criminals ideas out there, but you know, anyone watching your house that they go, well, these people aren't there. They've got your basic information. A new credit card arrives. They just they just take your post. I mean, I know it's a federal offense, but if you're already in that line of business or stealing stuff, that's going to be the least of your concern. And um, I, I'm actually just actually amazed that it's, that that's still how it's done today. That's right. And when, when I was on that project, um, we had cases where they call them um, finger mailing. So they go, they check the, your letter and whether there is a card. And if yes, they take it and they have they have your card now. Yeah. So those, those kind of things have been happening and there are like different types of fraud. Obviously now more popular one is a digital fraud. Uh, previously was more of a paper-based fraud. But um, these all things are happening and I think there's a lot the criminal mind is still generating those ideas and it works against that like reverse engineers mm. all this stuff so uh, well I think user beware like we need to be aware and I think um this slight complacency that we have towards our personal information our passwords um you know we need we actually step it up and get a little bit more robust and go listen it's our responsibility like where where are you putting stuff out it, I think the reverse has been true. You'd go, oh, they'd look after your data. Actually, that's not true anymore. You actually have to be vigilant about your personal information.
yeah, like the security is our responsibility, all the data that you're sharing, it's our responsibility. Yeah. Um, companies have breaches and yes, they pay fines, but you have lost that information already. Yeah. So it, but, but you need to be conscious, like what information you gave up. So when things happen, you, you have that incident response plan. So you know what you need to do, how to tackle that, how to uh, do those things quickly. It's the same, not only with the data breaches, it's the same with the um, license plates getting stolen. So sometimes the license plate on the car is something that you don't really look every day and no one's going to notify you until, unless someone sees it. And you can mm-hmm. drive your car for a couple of days without seeing this. That's and- actually an interesting point. And then it's been used in a robbery and the police phone you going, where were you? And you go, actually, I was just at home minding my own business. <laughs> <laughs> so I had this, uh, th- that happened to me actually about three weeks ago and um, we wouldn't know really about it because that happened on a Friday night and on Saturday, um, my husband and my son took the car uh, to wash the car and that's where my son was like, oh, hey, where the license plate? So that was the time I was like, oh, okay, we had the license plate yesterday because like he saw it and then this one. So it's, we were lucky to identify it quite quickly. But then you call the police and the police says, hey, it's not news. Uh, there's about 15,000 license plates stolen in Victoria every year. So within that X hours, you don't know what crime has been committed. And if you know about it late, that's how you get a call yeah. from a police. Yeah, I think that's a bit of a laissez-faire attitude. Oh, it's 15,000. I mean, I'm sure they, they made much of it just to go that it's, but that's astounding. 15,000. Who would have thought that? Is your car parked in the street or inside your property? So we live in a very quiet street. But at the day, on that day, we had a construction going in front of the house. And then we have two neighbors doing a construction. So our car was outside. And I think it sound, it looked like no one actually lives in here. And that was... That's when it uh, happened. Yeah. Well, we've got a lot of things to be aware of. That's all I can say. <laughs> Which brings me to, um, what has been your biggest challenge in your career? Oh, um, I think... I'm I'm usually pretty um, adapting quickly to the different environment and scenarios like and challenges. But one thing that um, that I can like just comes to my mind easily is when I just um, started like after ten plus years of education and uh, combined with the academic experience, I moved into consulting. Now academia is very different world. And I got really excited. So I'm getting into consulting. But once I get into the project, it took me actually some time to and effort to shift the mindset. And the mindset shift from was from that academia kind of thinking into the industry one. Because, for example, in academia, you have your experiments where you troll a lot of variables. Um, human factor is not really incorporated in a lot of things. And you can... You can do those tests many, many times over and by controlling those variables. But in industry, it's it's more, it's different because there are many more moving parts and uh, identifying those, understanding those and also implementing those. That was the, the mindset shift that I need to have. But so you can't control this. There's actually many more external variables affecting this. Identify those, understand and how you're going to implement those. So those are, I think, that was the, it was challenging, but I think it was very useful kind of 
jumping in that ocean and, and learning to swim. And did you did you have a mentor or someone like taking you through and helping you just with the the different space that you were operating in? Um, throughout my career, I had mentors. Yes, and uh, but currently I don't have one. But during my career, I had mentors, and it's great to have one. It's also quite difficult and challenging to find one. That it's it's not like you can go and ask someone. Oh, I think you can be a good mentor. Can you be my mentor? It's not those kind of conversations that you can do. Um, but throughout my career, yes, I had um, I had quite a bit of support and knowledge that I got um, from my mentors around those, even dealing with those challenges. Um, but I think nowadays on the other side, there are so many post- podcasts, videos, blogs, where successful people, leaders, they share, share their experience, their knowledge. And that's probably like doesn't really give you an experience of having a mentor the same experience but this helps you to get that those questions answered and also provide you some guidance like something that you would previously go through thousands and thousands of books to find that one piece of information that you'd need nowadays it's really easy to find and it's very open source so i think for those people who don't really have a mentor and they really need that piece of information that's where they can all find it yeah there are other organizations and i actually think particularly for women in stem there are a lot of resources available for women a lot of um, female mentors out there wanting to share their experiences with um, younger women coming through the ranks and I always go why do you want to learn my lesson that you know I've learned the lesson here are some insights for you uh, yeah that's that's where for example at Transurban we ha- and I am a big supporter of all these stem kind of program and at Transurban we think that encouraging women into business in particular those non-traditional roles, the so-called non-traditional roles, is crucial and they should start even uh, before they have graduated. Mm -hmm. So I think one thing that we're particularly proud of at Transurban is uh, a mentoring program that is run at Transurban, which is called uh, Female Excelling in Engineering and Technology. And the program is all about connecting those female students in engineering and technology and giving them the taste of what is possible in the workplace as well as pairing them with the men within the organization. So, and I believe those kind of programs and also companies becoming um, supporters and partners of different, this kind of uh, event, it is in the first place, it is very good for the industry itself because it strengthens the whole industry. And it also encourages more females into this space and I think it also gives them confidence that although this is not not the so-called traditional role for the female but um, the company supported and you're not the only one yeah. doing this and everyone is aware because when I started back at school uh, because I went to a mathematical class I had nine girls in the class and 36 boys oh about 30 boys so it was at the time you don't really realize that because I like maths and I never really understood why girls are not going into this profile but then throughout career you um you see that yes obviously in tech and engineering they're less female and I find it very um like a lot of students that we've seen actually in their female excelling engineering and technology they actually get surprised like oh how many women you have oh it's actually not only a like a dominant role for a male, for example, it's actually, and 
I've, I saw quite a few students getting like so encouraged and so lightened up with it. I, I agree with you, you know, and I think it's it's very important for companies such as Transurban, you know, and they're the lead partner for the women in AI um, to be very visible out there for other women to see, well, it's been done in these organizations. And um, I, I'm very interested in your remark about, you know, like kids coming through or students coming through and going, oh, like I was, you know, I'm surprised to see there's so many women. But I think it's because it sounds to me as though Transurban as a company is making a concerted effort to make it like that. I don't think it's representative across the board, but if a company makes an effort, then yes, you will find it. Yes, I think uh, so Transurban, is making an effort on that. We are um, we are targeting our efforts in gender equity across the business, and our business has been recognised as the um, the workplace gender by the workplace gender um, equality agency as an employer for choice. So I think for for the consecutive like nine years or maybe ten now. So congratulations! And, yeah, thank you. And we've also been ranked uh, second in Australia. Um, and accessed like within about 4,000 companies on criteria like gender biasness, um, gender pay gap, paid parental leave, uh, all these different type of uh, harassment policies. So we've been uh, ranked the second in Australia, which I think it, it's remarkable. And um, and all of those things, they are actually embedded even in, uh, in the interview process because we want to interview not only male but we want to have the same number of female get interviewed so they have the same chance and and it's actually us um seeing more more people applying that's number one yes but it also getting those teams diverse because that diversity makes a lot of impact and obviously a lot of research suggests that it makes a difference to the efficiencies as well definitely so to anyone in the audience listening to this and you're wondering what company should you research to go and work for put transurban on the top of your list Absolutely. Gunal, do you have any advice for women thinking of applying for the awards? Um, applying for the awards or for the the women in another no, women in AI awards? Oh, I think I think there are. There's probably um, one thing that that I would approach it is okay. So what could happen best and what could happen worst in this kind of scenario? And the best thing you get the award, which is awesome. And the worst thing is, well, you think, I mean, it's a failure, but it's actually not a failure because the key philosophy behind the failure is the idea that the failure is the necessary part of the growth and development. And if you take, if you shift your thinking and mindset into that point, you actually get a very expensive experience that not everyone has. So both ways, there's a best case and there's a worst case you are actually gaining something and you're the winner from both aspects so i think just uh, just give yourself a chance and give everyone a chance to see and um, acknowledge your accomplishments i think that's brilliant advice you know and it doesn't just go for the women in ai i think it goes to all um all awards or competitions or whatever the case may be there for women and men of course out there that you have to throw your hat in the ring to to be in contention you know and it is a it doesn't it's not actually really about the the win or lose it's paving the way forward for the next people that come through whether it's male or female again it doesn't really matter because you know people looking at you and going well you've applied and like that's what happened to you so well maybe I stand a chance you know I can do something exactly and it and it's just a bit of it requires a bit of bravery but that all sits in our heads and that's where i like when you think about it when you start self-doubt just one thing to understand that the 
there's nothing going wrong with it. You are actually getting this experience that one in a thousand or maybe one in 10,000 people would have. Definitely. And I think in the process, you really get to know yourself because these applying for awards is not, it's not just a two minute exercise. You really have to dig deep and think about what you've done. And actually it it could actually highlight areas where you may do more work. Absolutely. And that's that's where, um, that's what I'm saying, like philosophical thinking about it is that you actually learn from your failures more than from your success. So it's not only just the failure, it's that process where you actually understand, reflect and uh, realize. Vanel, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our audience with? Um, I think maybe there are, there are two principles that... I like to follow in life and I found them very helpful. So one thing is whatever happens in your life, whatever happens, it always happens for a good reason. And at the time, it might doesn't, doesn't really seem so. It may not seem so to you. But if you follow this principle, you actually get grateful for the things that happened that you thought were not really good. And the second one is just don't limit yourself. You can, it's um, probably quite a known phrases, but just don't limit yourself because you can achieve everything you believe in. And I think that's a, at the times you forget about it and you feel down, but it just remember that. And uh, you know, we're just humans who, who has created a lot of things up until now and we can continue developing and growing and uh, achieving success. That's wonderful advice. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for your time this morning. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a great pleasure. To our audience, I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as we have. Um, I hope you have a fabulous day wherever you are in the world. And I look forward to your company again soon.